I want us to look this evening a little bit at some early revivals to understand that revival has precedent. The first revival happened in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and they lost fellowship with God. And we find the story in Genesis of God coming to the garden, walking in the early morning, saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? (laughs) God had come looking for that which had died in order to resurrect it again. And as we study the book of Genesis and we progress through the Old Testament, we find God again and again and again coming to people that had fallen short of His glory, people that had blown it, people that had sinned, people that had been moved from a place of favor to a place deserving of judgment because of their sin and rebellion. And we find the heart of God being extended to them, seeking and reaching out to draw them to themselves. You know, some people have said the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and a God of anger and a God of law and a God of judgment. Well, people have said that, but that's not true at all. This may come as a big shock tonight to some folks, but the God of the Old Testament is the same one as the God of the New Testament. We don't have one for the old and a new and improved model in the new. God has never changed. We see different dimensions of His personality. There's a little word, it's a very powerful Hebrew word, it's called hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And hesed has no equivalent in the English language that truly portrays the fullness of the meaning of that little word. The first time that the Old Testament was translated into the New and was printed as an English Bible was by a man by the name of Miles Coverdale and the famous Coverdale Bible. And I believe that was in the year about 1535 that the Coverdale Bible came into existence. And when Coverdale was translating out of the Hebrew, and let me just chase a rabbit momentarily here and say that one of the things we must be vigilant in our generation is to be sure that we treat the Word of God as it needs to be treated. There are people that are coming up with modern versions of Scripture that are not based on accurate translation from the original articles. And that can create a host of problems. A paraphrase is when we take a language and we take what's written and we paraphrase it into more modern contemporary forms. We cannot do that with God's Word. It must be accurately translated from the original, else we lose entire meanings. And so when Coverdale was translating from the Hebrew to the first English Bible, the 1500s, there was a word there called hesed, and there was no English word to correspond with it. And so he actually created a word by combining two words. He took the word loving, and he combined it with the word kindness to make the word loving kindness. And that was the way that Coverdale translated the word said was loving kindness, which was a steadfast, unmovable, would not change 
commitment on God's part that God was always seeking a way to bless people. That was part of his nature. Now that word is found, I believe it's 240 times, that part of the very nature of God is his loving kindness and how he's always about doing good. He's always about seeking a way to bring blessing. And that was the Hebrew word of the God of the Old Testament, is God really is good all the time. And he always is looking for a way to bless people. It is the chesed of God that is the motivation inside of his very nature to constantly be trying to send revival. What does revival mean? We looked at that in another section that we've already covered, but to revive is to revive. Or in other words, reintroject life into something that is dying or has already died. It is God's way of doing CPR. It is when the heart has stopped and breath has ceased that God comes and does CPR and seeks to reestablish and cause to live again and cause to breathe again and cause the heart that has ceased to beat to begin to beat once more in order that life not be lost. That's what revival is. And revival has always been a part of church history. It was found throughout the Old Testament. Look with me very quickly at Jeremiah chapter 2. We alluded to this scripture in a previous session. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord speaks through his prophet, Jeremiah, a stinging indictment of his people Israel. A stinging indictment in which they are charged with two sins that have grievously offended God. Those two sins are found in Jeremiah 2 verse 13 where God says, For my people have committed two evils. The first one is, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God was rebuking Israel, saying to them, My people have sinned against me because, first of all, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've tried to, in my absence, create something of their own doing as a substitute for me, which cannot substitute for me. They've made cisterns in order to hold water, but the cisterns are cracked and broken and the water has run out. I would like to encourage you to do something that I did several months ago, and that is to sit down and read the entire book of Jeremiah in one sitting. And you will be amazed, as I was, because I've read Jeremiah, this part of Jeremiah, that part of Jeremiah over the years, but I had never sat down and read the whole thing in its entirety, and I was stunned to realize that Jeremiah is a powerful prophecy of God just rebuking and threatening, impending judgment upon his people. 
And then right in the middle of God's indictment and His warning of coming judgment and His wrath, here is an open door for repentance. And God would say, well, I'll just forget the whole thing and bless you. But then I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy you for you've sinned against me and I'm offended. But if you will repent, I will come back and just cancel all. Some of the most powerful promises of God. I know the plans that I have for you. Plans of blessing and a future and a hope. Call unto me and I will hear and answer and show you great and mighty things that you know not. We like to quote these scriptures from Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah 33. But these scriptures are promises of God that are literally sandwiched right in the middle of stinging indictments, threatening impending judgment. And so even in the midst of wrath, even in the midst of judgment over sin, God is always there ready and eager to make the whole thing be suspended and go back into a pattern of blessing. That is the nature of God. And so throughout the Old Testament, we find this pattern of God blessing, people enjoying the blessings, and then them forsaking the blessing and forsaking His presence and glory and getting involved in other things that God has forbidden them to do, and God coming and visiting them again and again and again, sometimes with judgment to the place that ultimately He brings them to repentance. And my brothers and sisters, when they repent, Guess what happens? God comes and blesses again. And then people get complacent in the blessings and they begin to drift once more back into apostasy. And then God comes and reels them in and sends revival. And that's the pattern that flows all the way from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi. Revival after revival from the Garden of Eden until the close of the Old Testament dispensation we find God is a God of revival. John the Baptist was a revivalist. He was a very unusual, unique man, filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother Elizabeth's womb, destined by God as a prophet. He was a forerunner of Jesus, sent to plow the ground and sow the seed and make things ready for the coming of Jesus, his first cousin. Now, we do not know this as fact, so don't take it as fact, but there is some evidence to support the idea that John the Baptist's entire ministry may have only lasted about six months. We don't know that, but it was very short-lived. We do know that. And in that period of time, he baptized multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people unto repentance. Some have estimated perhaps the number of people baptized by John the Baptist. It could have gone into the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Some have even speculated perhaps even a million or more people. We don't know. But one thing we do know is John's ministry was a revival ministry. There was a glory, there was an anointing upon him and upon his meetings that attracted, drew multitudes of people wherever he was while he preached a message of repentance. Now I want you to hear me very clearly. All revivals must include an element of repentance. 
For without repentance, there is no change. Repentance means to turn. That's what it means. It simply means to change course. It means to turn in another direction. And the gospel that John the Baptist preached and the gospel that every Old Testament prophet preached was a message of repentance. You cannot separate revival from the message of repentance, else there is no revival. And so John the Baptist had a supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit, and God used him in a powerful way. And when people came around that ministry, they came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing that was on him, which caused people to be acutely aware of their sinful nature and caused people to want to turn to God to make it right. The great revival that God wants to send that turns nations is a revival when people recognize the horrors of sin in the eyes of a holy God. And we don't hear that message very much these days, for it is a very, very unpopular message. But the reality of it, my friends, is that God is holy. And only by grace, only by His has said, His loving kindness, His mercy, His love, His passionate desire to bless people. People say, well, God is a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God, you know, in a bad mood or whatever. If that were true, if you think about it just a little bit, if God was really that kind of God, I mean, He'd just take one look at everything that's going on in the earth and say, I've had enough of this. Poof, the whole thing would be gone in a heartbeat. He's not a God of wrath and a God of judgment, a God of condemnation that's out there. He's a God of loving kindness and desire to send revival. That's the reason I'm so confident we stand on the threshold of a great one because as I travel up and down and throughout this nation and other nations around the world, I find people everywhere I go that are walking in humility and crying out to God, God visit us again, God come again. And the has said loving kindness and mercy of God that has been portrayed for thousands of years in Scripture is going to override whatever obstacles must be conquered. And God is going to show Himself strong in order that people might be restored to Him once again. John the Baptist had a revival ministry. That was the DNA of what John the Baptist did. It may come as a great shock The ministry of Jesus was a revival ministry. The reality is Jesus taught on repentance. Jesus and his disciples baptized people just exactly like John the Baptist did. It's in your Bible. And Jesus came preaching a gospel of repentance. Some people would have us to believe that Jesus just kind of showed up on the scene and He was loosey-goosey and happy, always in a good mood, and everything was cool with Jesus, and he's just hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drunks and just happy with everybody. Well, the reality is, let me shoot a sacred cow between the eyes tonight. And if this offends somebody, I say it out of love, but this is going to kind of rub the cat's hair the wrong way with a lot of people. And if I rub the cat's hair the wrong way with you, don't get mad at me. Just turn the cat around because there's a reality here in all of this. 
How many have ever heard the old statement, Jesus is a friend of sinners? Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus was never a friend of sinners. Jesus passionately loved sinners. Jesus was merciful to sinners. Jesus cared for sinners. Jesus went where the sinners were. Jesus so passionately loved sinners, he went to a cruel cross and shed his blood to pay the price of the penalty of sin for all the sinners of the world. But Jesus is not a friend of sinners. Jesus loves sinners, but he went and he told sinners about a way out and a way to repent. And when they refused that and they did not heed his message, Jesus said, woe unto you. Let's just clarify that a little bit. Jesus loves sinners, but Jesus is not a friend of sinners that goes and hangs out with, and hey, it's okay, it's all right, hey, that's fine, don't change on my behalf. No, Jesus went about talking about a cross and taking up our cross and following him. I made a discovery some months ago, and I really believe it was the Holy Spirit that stirred this thing in my heart, because I picked up my Bible and I read the entire book of Matthew in one sitting. And I took a pen, and every time Jesus either rebuked something or Jesus gave a warning, a stern warning, of something that people should escape and avoid and flee from, I just put a little star next to that scripture. I didn't try to stretch it out. I didn't try to see how many stars I could put. If anything, I erred on the side of conservatism. Went through the book of Matthew putting stars by all the rebukes and all the warnings. When I got to the end of the book, I went back and I was amazed at how many were there, so I counted them. And what I found is there were 120 stars. I thought, this can't be true. I went and I checked them. There were 120. So I thought, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke are very similar. I'll go read the book of John because John was the love apostle. I did the same thing in the book of John. I found 70 times that Jesus either rebuked or Jesus warned. My brothers and sisters, that's a gospel of repentance that Jesus preached. He didn't just go around multiplying fish and bread and turning water into wine and healing everybody and casting out devils. The greatest meetings that Jesus ever had were in the cities of Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin. And that's where he multiplied the fish and the bread. And it was later that Jesus came back, and the Bible says that he rebuked the city in which most of his mighty works had been done because they, what? Did not repent. And he said, woe unto you, Bethsaida, woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Capernaum. And he went on to say it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of final judgment than for you because had Sodom and Gomorrah experienced the miracles and seen all the demonstrations of the power of God that you saw, they would have repented and God would have sent revival and Sodom and Gomorrah would have been spared to this day. But he said it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for the three cities in which Jesus did most of his mighty works. Now that doesn't sound to me like Jesus was always in a good mood. Some people say, you know, God's always in a good mood. He's always in a good mood. Those guys that were selling their stuff and the wares in the temple that day, and Jesus came in and made a whip, 
and turned over their tables and scattered their money and swinging a whip and yelling, you've made my father's house a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. I don't think he was in a good mood that day. I don't think he was in a good mood 120 times in the book of Matthew where he rebuked and where he warned. Jesus' ministry was love and grace and kindness, the chesed of his Father, the goodness of his Father. My brothers and sisters, we've gone so far the other way now with the message of hyper-grace and some of these things. Nobody's concerned about revival. We don't think we need it anymore because God's cool with everything. Listen, just because God's not judging does not mean He's cool. We better move on. The New Testament, beginning at Acts chapter 2, is about revival. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, revival was ignited, and it went everywhere. Multitudes of people were being saved. Revival fires were burning everywhere. People were turning to embracing Christianity in untold numbers. We must keep that within the context, though, and realize they didn't have a Bible like we have a Bible. They didn't have Bible schools. They didn't have seminaries. They didn't have church buildings. Why, they didn't even have Christian television. How in the world could they have even made it? But they did have the presence of God. They had the Holy Ghost. They had the Spirit of Almighty God moving in them and through them, and the heavens had been opened, and the presence of God had been lavishly poured out. And everywhere they went, people were turning to Jesus in multitudes. Why? Because of the holiness of God had stirred something deep within the hearts of people that they needed to turn and to repent. It was revival. It was revival. It was atmospheric revival. Atmospheric revival. I remember being in Bath, England several years ago. Bath, England in the first century was sort of the Mecca, if you would, for the demonic goddess Minerva. And when revival came to Bath, England, to this day you go to museums there and you see the statues of the goddess Minerva. Every one of them have their heads knocked off. When revival came to Bath, England, so great was the glory that people suddenly, literally began to knock the heads off the goddess that they had worshipped for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, they tore down the altars. They knocked the heads off of the statues. They took demonic temples dedicated to the worship of this demonic spirit, turned them into churches. <laughs> That's revival. That's what happens when revival comes. The Holy Spirit is the originator of all revival. And He has been in the earth breathing life into the earth all the way back to Genesis 1-2. The second verse in the Bible is about the Holy Spirit brooding over the earth, imparting life. Did you see the pictures in the newspaper and on television of the 40th anniversary of man setting foot on the moon? That place, just total desolation. And yet look at the earth. Life everywhere. Life in the air. Life in the trees. Life on the ground. Life under the ground. Life in the sea. Everywhere you can turn, there's life in a million different forms in every direction. And yet you go to the moon, you go to these other places in the universe, it's just barren. 
It's cold, it's hot, it's radioactive, it's dead, it's desolate, it's poison, and yet the world. Why? Because in Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit came and brooded over the earth and literally impregnated the earth with the life of God. And that's what revival is. It's the Holy Spirit coming and striving to bring back to life that which was lost and that which had died. Let us move very quickly. I want us to look at revival prior to the year 1500. We don't have a lot of writings and evidences, but we have glimpses all the way throughout history back even to the second century and the third century of moves of God, even among the monastic movements, whereby there were orders of people that were set aside to pray and seek the holiness of God in those days. There are few records, but God has always had a people in every generation that were hungry for His glory. God has always reserved for Himself a remnant in every generation of people that sought His face, that were hungry for the revelation of His presence, hungry for the revelation of His power, that wanted the God that they knew to come and reveal Himself. In 1484, there was a monk by the name of Savonarola. How many have ever heard of Savonarola? An amazing story. Savonarola was in Italy. He was a monk in a little town outside of Florence, Italy. And he studied the Bible constantly. And he was a man of prayer. And God began to visit Savonarola. And God began to give him visions. And Savonarola began to get caught up in the glory of God. And crowds began to come to his meetings. And because of the size of his church where he pastored, you couldn't get them in. And so they moved into Florence, Italy. And atmospheric revival came to Florence. Savonarola would get up to preach. And this was in a very, very, very religious Catholic, everything was Catholic in those days, but it was very, very religious environment. And Savonarola would get up to preach and the glory would come. And sometimes Savonarola would just get caught up in the glory for hours at a time, just in a trance. The presence of God would come. And there were those in Savonarola's day that said the glory of God would come upon him and his face would almost appear to be glowing with the presence of God. And the glory came in Florence, Italy in such a measure that there are references in history. It said the people walked through the streets of Florence as in a daze. Such revival came and people turned to the Lord in such measure that they had a gathering in the city of Florence, in the middle of the city, where everyone brought all their magic paraphernalia, all their spiritual stuff, all the junk, all the fetishes. They brought pornographic art and all the things that they had that were pornographic and were evil. They brought them to the middle of Florence, Italy, and they put them in the middle of the town. The pile was 60 feet high and 250 feet across. People just loaded up all this stuff in this big pile, and they had a bonfire and burned it up because of revival through a monk by the name of Savonarola. And that was back in the 1400s, you see. 
After the year 1500, it seems that something shifted. And God began to come and visit in greater and greater ways. Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation is an example of that, 1517. And it was actually Savonarola that was preaching against the church in those days that God had spoken to him and except the church repent, that judgment would come upon it. And he was persecuted and Savonarola was ultimately killed for his message on revival But while religion was killing Savonarola, God had a teenage boy warming up in the bullpen by the name of Martin Luther, who God raised up to bring the Protestant Reformation, which was literally like the judgment of sorts on the church of that day, with the message of salvation by faith. And so the 1700s, the 1500s, the 1600s, were centuries of God moving. The 1700s, it just increased. In that period of time, the Moravians had a prayer meeting that lasted 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a hundred years. Can you imagine, son? 24 hours a day for an entire century praying for revival. The First Great Awakening with John Wesley and all that God brought out of that because he'd been influenced by the Moravians in a powerful, powerful, powerful way. And so it was out of that movement that God ultimately brought the First Great Awakening through Wesley. The social conditions before revival came could not have been worse hardly. I mean, England was a mess. Crime ruled. It was estimated that every third house in the city of London was what was known as a gin house, that for a pence you could get enough booze to get drunk. For two pence you could get enough booze to not only get drunk but buy an armload of hay to put on the ground so that when you passed out you'd have a dry place to sleep it off. Crime was rampant. People were just killed in the streets and lawlessness prevailed everywhere. The social conditions were deplorable. The state of the church, it was gone. I mean, there was just nothing there of any spiritual nature except God began to intervene. And because of that great awakening in England, revival came. The government of England was changed. The laws of England were changed. The church of England was changed. And God brought the life of God and breathed it into that entire nation through the Wesleys. The Great Awakening in America, the first Great Awakening that came to the colonies in America in 1738 and into the 1740s. My brothers and sisters of the original colonists before America was even formed, there were over 50,000 people that were saved in that revival. I challenge you tonight to go to the public library or go to any university or college library in your state and find secular books on American history. Don't take my word for it or read the accounts of revivals. Go and get secular American history books and virtually every one of them, every one that I've ever read, had lengthy accounts of the Great Awakening. Because it was a formative thing that God did in this nation that helped America to become what it was. Even the secular historians have devoted lengthy, lengthy passages in their history book. 
My two youngest are in college. They've both taken American history in two separate colleges. And I went to their textbook and found large volumes of information about the Great Awakening in America. That was the power that even secular humanist historians today acknowledge that God did something in an awesome, awesome way. I want us to look quickly at some names that are associated with these revivals. One of them is the name John Wesley, and Wesley's name is associated with the first great awakening that came in England. Wesley was a student at Oxford University, a brilliant scholar. The hand of God had been upon his life for many years. Wesley had actually come to Georgia as a missionary to the Native Americans. And he came to Georgia and the whole thing was a disaster. I mean, Wesley's not even sure he himself was saved. And yet he came to America to evangelize the Native Americans. Has anybody ever been to St. Simon's Island, Georgia? Well, that was the region where Wesley had come. And it was terrible. And he left in great despair. He left in great discouragement. And on the ship going back to England, the ship ran into a big storm. And they thought that surely the sailing ship would capsize and would be sunk and all on board would be lost. And Wesley was terrified. But on board the ship was a group of Moravians. Now this is the Moravian connection. The same group that had been praying for revival and interceding For a hundred years, there were Moravians on the ship. And John Wesley's on the ship. And John Wesley's observing everybody on the ship is terrified, including himself. And yet here are these Moravians that are praying in perfect peace, in perfect security. And Wesley saw these people have a dimension of faith and relationship with God that I don't know anything about. And so it was the Moravians, you see, that had been praying for the revival for a hundred years that God intersected the lives of some of those people with the man that God had ordained in the purposes and plans of God to bring the Great Awakening. And it was through that contact with Moravians that Wesley was touched and blessed that ultimately brought him to the place on Fetter Lane in London in, I believe it was 1739, and where God visited a New Year's Eve prayer meeting. And John Wesley's statement was, I felt my heart strangely warmed. There were 60 of them there that night. They were laughing in the spirit, and they called themselves the Holy Club. They were very stoic, but yet the glory came, and God visited them in a wonderful way. And it was out of that that the seeds were sown, and it was out of that ignition point that the Great Awakening began to be manifest in England through John and Charles Wesley. One of their friends, a man also from Oxford, a man by the name of George Whitfield, was in that same meeting. I think Whitfield at that time was 22 years of age. And Whitfield was a powerful, powerful personality. And God just visited that prayer meeting and Whitfield was touched with the power of God. And Whitfield began to go into churches to preach, but the churches didn't want anything to do with him. And secondly, the crowds that were coming to Whitfield's meetings were too big to put them in the churches anyway. So Whitfield began to go outside the churches and began to preach outside to masses of people. 
He would get up early in the morning and would go to the coal mines to be there for the coal miners on their way before dawn to work in the coal mines and Whitfield would be out there preaching and God would come and people began to get saved. And God used George Whitfield in a profound way as part of that great awakening. Whitfield actually came to America, came to America, came to Philadelphia, preached even up and down the eastern seaboard right here in your own state of North Carolina. Whitfield had meetings in those days. And God used him in an amazing way as a catalyst for revival. So the names that you need to remember associated with the Great Awakening in England were the Wesleys and George Whitfield. Now when the Great Awakening came to America, it was through the ministry of a young preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards lived in a town outside of Hartford, Connecticut. Enfield, Connecticut was the place. That's where he was born. I've been to Enfield. I've been to the house where Jonathan Edwards was born and where he grew up and ultimately where he himself lived with his wife and children. There was a little church in that town located probably no further than from here out to the far corner of the parking lot from where Edwards lived that he was the pastor of that church. And it was there in that church on a hot summer night in July that Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most famous sermons that has ever been preached. Even today, it is considered one of the most powerful speeches, even among secular people in American history. And the name of that sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But it was more than a sermon. It was a sermon preached under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jonathan Edwards was virtually blind. I mean, he could not see. He read from a manuscript, and everything Jonathan Edwards preached, he wrote it all out by hand. And so that night, he's preaching a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God from full manuscript, holding it in one hand like this, trying to read it, while holding a light in the other so he could see the words. But that night, the heavens opened. The barrier that separates the natural realm from the supernatural realm was breached. And when that breach occurred, the people that were in that meeting had visions of heaven above them and hell beneath them. And grown men were terrified. They say that men were squeezing the wooden pews so hard their hands had turned white. Women had fainted in horror. Grown men were trembling under the power of God as though suspended in a realm between two realms of heaven above and hell beneath. They were so terrified in that place. That sermon was the catalyst that God ultimately used to bring an awakening in this nation that shook America. You see, our nation was birthed in revival. Don't ever forget that. This is not a Hindu nation. This is not a Muslim nation. This is not a Buddhist nation. This is a nation that was birthed in the blazing fire of God's glory from its very inception. Some of the founding fathers of this country were men that had been branded by revival. 
some of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, men like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was the largest financial contributor to the ministry of George Whitfield and was a close personal friend. And it was Benjamin Franklin and his printing company that printed the flyers advertising George Whitfield's meetings when he was here. Benjamin Franklin was intrigued with Whitfield's preaching. Whitfield had such an ability to project his voice. There were no microphones. And it was Benjamin Franklin that actually walked around through a gathering of 30,000 people, checking the sound levels, and wrote about the voice of George Whitfield, how that as he had moved around through the crowd of 30,000 people gathered to hear Whitfield preach, that he could hear Whitfield preaching clearly at all places. So these men and these people that were a part of the very founding of America were people that had been birthed in revival, people that had been touched with revival, people that knew the presence of God and the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, it must come again. We must go back to where we started. For it was for that heritage that every piece of money in your pocket tonight has in God we trust on it. The Supreme Court in Washington, irregardless of liberals and conservatives on the court, all of them sit on the bench beneath the words in God we trust. It's been a part of the heritage of this nation from its earliest days. Amen.